0: I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources. And we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single Platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I don't know if you recall a few months ago, but there was some noise in the birding community about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service making changes to the duck stamp. In short, they wanted to mandate the inclusion of some sort of hunting element on the stamp. This was proposed as a permanent change. I don't think I talked about it on this podcast, but I did on the ABA's Twitter account. Sometimes I get turned around as to where I bring these things up. But essentially, we, and I'm speaking as the organization, opposed this change. Why? Well, we have been encouraging birders to purchase duck stamps for many years because it is such an effective tool for protecting bird habitat. You know, famously 98% of the purchase price goes directly to habitat acquisition. There is shockingly little administrative overhead. I think you would be hard-pressed to find a more efficiently managed conservation program. And, you know, the duck stamp also serves as a ticket to national wildlife refuges for which there is an entry fee. So, you know, there's a practical purpose as well. At 25 bucks, it's a bit of a no-brainer that we would get behind this. So we opposed this change because adding a specific hunting element makes this stamp a bit of a harder sell for non-consumptive users of refuges. Not all of them, but some. Uh, The duck is enough, right? It's frequently a beautiful painting. And while no one has ever denied the role that waterfowl hunters have historically and currently played in establishing refuges and protecting habitat, I'm certainly not going to start doing that now. It makes good sense to try to expand the pool of purchasers, expand the stakeholders. The numbers of hunters are, in fact, declining. The number of birders, hikers, butterflies, mothers, happy Mothers Day, by the way, are increasing. Fish and Wildlife Service knows this. They have been actively promoting the stamp to naturalists and outdoor people in the last decade or so. For all changes, there need to be a public comment period. They open it. Comments come in. Overwhelmingly opposed to this change, by the way. Not just from birders, but artists who don't like it when the elements change. uh, From hunters who are like, why? So, of course, last week, they change it. Future duck stamps will be... Required permanently to include a hunting element. Dogs, decoys, blinds, I guess, deer stalker hats, maybe boats. I don't know. So that's that's the groundwork, right? So you know me, I like a little foundation upon which to build my house of righteous indignation. So here goes. Here's the part that bugs me the most about this change. Nobody wanted it. It was unpopular. Everybody liked the current duck stamp. It was working great. If you want a hunting element, maybe make it a requirement every few years. You know, Every once in a while the duck stamp would have a decoy or something on it. Those are not my favorite ones, but you know, whatever, not a huge deal. But permanent? This is so dumb. Why needlessly complicate things? Why intentionally narrow the appeal of the stamp? Why limit your audience instead of growing it? Why make this 180-degree change in language and intent and throw away the last couple decades of work that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has done to expand this franchise? Uh, I know that a lot of us in the birding community know U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service people. They are frequently birders. They are members of our community. They are our friends. I have to think that there are a lot of fish and wildlife folks out there who are shaking their heads about this too. And again no one is denying the role that hunters have played in supporting conservation but let's be real here waterfowl hunters are required to purchase these stamps in order to hunt waterfowl there is no extra pool of waterfowl hunters who are going to buy more stamps because of this change but there are non-consumptive users who will be turned off by the inclusion of this hunting element and the accompanied promotion of the duck stamp as an explicitly waterfowl hunting stamp. You are shrinking your pool of donors, purchasers, whatever. Why do I think this happened? The director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is a politically appointed position rather than a bureaucratic Position. So, the current director is Aurelia Skipworth. She took her position in December 2019. This initiative was the first thing she evidently did. Uh, My interpretation of this move is that it is political pandering to the president's perceived, not even actual, just perceived base. And this is made pretty evident by the prominent inclusion in the press release of a quote from a representative of Safari Club International, which if you are not familiar... With that organization, it is they speak primarily for wealthy sport hunters, and uh, their most you know frequent legislative efforts involve greasing the skids to allow for the importation to the United States of trophies from IUCN red listed species that their members shoot overseas. So that's that's what they do. Look, people are still going to purchase duck stamps. The ABA will continue to encourage the purchase of duck stamps as they remain a remarkably effective means of supporting habitat conservation. That hasn't changed. That does not look like it is going to change. But this feels like a slap in the face to those of us who use refuges for birding and hiking and naturing. And to watch the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service effectively hamstring their most successful conservation tool to placate Uh, Evidently, the egos of sport hunters who are unsurprisingly political donors probably don't even care that much. Well, I think we can all agree that that is pretty ducked up. On the show today, I am going to talk bird books with my favorite book enthusiast, Donna Shulman from 10,000 Birds and Frank Izagiri from Birding Magazine. Our topic: big year narratives. What makes them good? What makes them fun? Pour yourself a glass of wine, sample the cheese plate. Get ready to dive in. It's the American Birding Podcast, Birding Book Club. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of May 2020. Are you tired of hearing about Gargany yet? It has been an exceptional spring for the widespread Old World teal, and yet another was discovered in the ABA area recently, this time in Virginia's Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge. This would represent that state's fifth record and the sixth this spring, following individuals in Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, Texas, and two in California. I have three first records to report this week, two of which come from the prairie provinces, which is kind of cool. In Alberta, the province's first record of western Gull was seen in Grand Prairie. This species is most associated with the immediate Pacific coast. But there are quite a few records for the interior west, especially in the last decade. And it has, in the past, come quite close to Alberta in southeast British Columbia. Saskatchewan also gets a provincial first in the last couple weeks with a lesser goldfinch near the town of Yorkton at the end of April. It was not seen again. There were two previous unconfirmed reports of this species in the province, so nice to finally get that one photographed. And in West Virginia, mentioned for the second straight week, a Pacific loon was seen near the Ohio border on the Ohio River south of Parkersburg in Wood County. This bird was initially seen in Ohio, but then willed, no doubt, by the collective force of mind of West Virginia birders, it was eventually seen on the West Virginia side of the river where it became the state's first record. And just as an aside, that this bird was a state first actually surprised me a little bit, but West Virginia is probably the hardest state in the ABA area to get a handle on uh, what birds are good, uh, because it's not only landlocked, but it's also mostly forested and very hilly, so it does not have many large reservoirs for shorebirds or waterfalls. So Pacific Loon, which is pretty common in the east nowadays, is a state first. But then West Virginia, their state list has a great knot on it, which is one of the great mind-blowing records of the ABA area, so go figure. Anyway, that is all for rarities in the ABA area for the period. For all the stuff I didn't mention, please check out the Rare Bird Alert hub on the ABA website, aba.org RBA. You can also find lots of rare birds at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash groups ABA rare. Or you can check out our rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Uh, welcome to the first installment of what I am calling the American Birding Podcast Book Club, uh, what I hope will be a semi-regular feature here now that we are we're going to a weekly schedule. But most of all, this is just the opportunity for me to talk books with a couple of my favorite fellow bird book enthusiasts, uh, both of which you will know if you are a regular podcast listener or a member of the ABA. Uh, first off, she is the lead uh, top Best, maybe, bird book reviewer at the website, 10,000 Birds. Uh, she has come on the podcast annually to talk uh, best bird books of a given year. But we're going to broaden her scope a little bit. Uh, welcome back, Donna. Donna Schulman. Hi. Hi. Uh, and he is the book and media review editor for Birding Magazine here at the ABA. He's been on the show before, but I don't think you have joined us in your official capacity as a media reviewer. So uh, welcome. Welcome, Frank. Frank is a Gary. Thanks, Nate. Very happy to be here. So our topic today, Big Year Narratives. This is sort of a classic genre of birding book. There are a lot of examples of that form out there, especially in recent years. It's felt a little bit like if you do a big year, you are sort of obligated to write about it afterward. So which do you think sort of comes first, the, the increase in the number of big years
1: or uh, the interest in writing books about them? Or do they come together? Huh. Well, that's, I mean, the first thing that jumps to mind when you ask that question is I recall in, I think it was Lynn Barber's um, book, Extreme Birder, she writes specifically about how one of the reasons why she wanted to do a big year, part of her motivation was because then she could have material to write a book about. Um, So I think that's definitely a factor that, you know, is in the minds of a lot of, Big year birders or birders who are contemplating doing a big year, yeah, I think it's certainly an incentive for a lot of them. Then again, it's a lot of work to write a book, or yeah. you know, a lot of what I think a lot of authors have to negotiate is they do a blog, or maybe they just do like mm-hmm. pretty heavy social media uh, presence. Then you know, if you do a blog, you you have the material, but it's 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 a lot of work and it's its own kind of challenge. I would imagine to convert the blog into a good book, or you know, maybe
2: you don't put quite as much effort in, but then yeah, you know, the book isn't as strong. So um. yeah, I think um, the blogging has come into play in increasing the books. And mm-hmm. the first thing I do, not the first thing, but one of the things I do, if I'm reading a book that has come uh, after a blog, is I go back to the blog. And I was really impressed with Neil Hayward's book, *Lost mm-hmm. Among the Birds. Quote, yeah, he was um, the first
0: thing that came to mind when you talked about that because his blog was yeah. really nice. Like during his big year, his blog was like well updated and he's he's a very compelling writer as well. It was one of the better big year blogs out there, I thought.
2: Yes, but he really reworked it to create mm-hmm. a, uh, a strong narrative, a different kind of narrative for the book because – the, uh, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead of things, but...
0: No, no, please go ahead. Uh, yeah. The
2: blog was about his his birding and his travels. And the book was really about um, an internal struggle that under, uh, lied all of that. Yeah. Um, but, th- but then I've read um, one or two books where it's essentially uh, the blog.
0: There's something different about doing like a daily recap of what you're seeing and then kind of turning that into a... A real narrative like you have to in a book. It's, it's, you do have to sort of look at your big ear in a different, in a different way. And when I talked to Neil uh, after he did this, this was like very, very early when we started this podcast. Like Neil was one of the first people I talked to. And I don't know if I ever released that interview come to it, come to think of it. Maybe I should go back and try and see if I can find that. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he talked a little bit about how he went back and looked at his blog and realized that that would be a really super dry book, and he
1: ended up having to rework it, uh, as you say, Donna. I think his work paid off, for sure, because he, he did um, come up with one of the more compelling big-year narratives, especially in recent years.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, because I do want to talk a little bit about that uh, later on, but why do you think this sort of big-year narrative, this sort of big-year book, is such a popular genre? Like, What does make it work?
2: Well, the first thing that comes to mind is wish fulfillment. I, I, don't we <laughs> yeah. all want to do that? And there have been um, some big-year people. I don't know if they've written the books, though. Most of the big-year books are people who just are birding. And yeah, uh, we want to do that.
0: Yeah, it certainly works for, for birders, but I can see why they sort of ta- – if they want this, this narrative to be appealing to a – group of people beyond birders who maybe don't understand the sort of drive that makes someone even want to do a big year, you do have to have that, that angle like Neil does so well, like uh, Noah Stricker does a little bit in his recent uh, global big year narrative. Uh, like a lot of the, what I would say, better narratives find, like they will find that other thread, that other sort of very personal story that makes it um, a very compelling narrative beyond the birding. Uh, because otherwise, I think you're sort of limiting your audience to that sort mm-hmm. of
2: book. Mm-hmm.
1: I would say also that they really transparently embrace and capture the sport and the competition of birding and mm-hmm. also the obsessiveness. They just go with it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to hide. You know, we're going to just mm-hmm. go nuts. <laughs> and
2: it's <laughs> and so, okay. It's okay. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or kind of okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think that that sort of aspect of it do- is something that is appealing to people who aren't birders necessarily, because they do understand obsession. They do understand setting a goal and wanting to reach it. Um, and when I have talked to people about birding, sometimes the more kind of pastoral aspect of birding, like going out and just kind of walking around in the woods for a little while is an opportunity to clear your mind. Um, oh, maybe these days that's a very appealing prospect when we're all kind of stuck indoors. But um in the past, you know, that's sort of a it's hard for people who maybe aren't birders to sort of get that. But people will immediately grasp the idea of I want to break a record. I want to see 750 species of birds in this area. I want to go on this adventure. This adventure idea, the adventure narrative is one that, you know, exists even beyond uh beyond birding books.
2: I was just going to say I sort of divided the big year books I'm familiar with into mm-hmm. three different categories. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the uh, personal journey, which you get with with Lost Among the Birds and Kingbird Highway. There's the travelogue, uh, mm-hmm. which is actually also a separate genre. Uh, so it becomes a travelogue with birds, like the Jewel Hunter. Mm-hmm. And then there's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. the diaries, which I think are the books just for birders only.
0: I mean, which is fine. I mean, there's a there's a lot of birders out there and uh, a lot of people, it seems, especially early on when you're talking about uh, books like uh, Sandy Camito's books or things that came out in the 80s and 90s. It was very clear that that audience that they had in mind was a birding audience and not a, a wider audience. And things like birds, books like Neil Hayward's book and Noah Stricker's book, the audience is very clearly beyond birding.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a conscious mm-hmm. decision. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that there is sort of a tension between these stories of, of racking up birds and telling a good narrative, finding that good narrative or that travelogue? Sometimes bird stories, like finding bird stories, are not terribly exciting. Like, it's <laughs> like, I got up, I drove to the place where the bird was, I waited 20
1: minutes, the bird showed up, I left.
2: <laughs> and I, I, an had, and I had breakfast.
1: <laughs> I had breakfast, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, that's kind of that's that's even in the uh, I would say that's even in the title of one of Sandy's books, which I haven't read. I came, I saw, I counted. But, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> have you guys read either of his books because I have not been able to get those. They're very expensive. Every now and then I look because I would love to read one of them or both yeah. of them.
2: Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I'm not going to spend that kind of money, um, so I just rely on stories of people who've, re- who've read it. Um, yeah, like in the big year, you know, he talks about. Sandy's earlier books
1: yeah right that's true that's true I I actually one time I chased a rare bird and saw Sandy Camito there and it was (laughs) I got to meet him I don't know if you guys have met him and he was so cool he was really funny (laughs) yeah he does have this
0: reputation and it is sort of buoyed by uh Mark of Masick's book about that um that 1998 big year run with uh, with Greg Miller and uh, Al Levantine, mm-hmm. um, you know, Mark has a different angle. So his 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 story is unabashedly meant for a non-birding mm-hmm. audience. Mm-hmm. And to that end, you know, he does have to turn those characters into characters, you know, take their yeah. they're a little, little bit caricatured. Um there's nothing wrong with that because it makes a very compelling story but you know Sandy has this reputation like he is the New Jersey brash you know all business uh kind of guy and and to some extent you have to be that if you're going to do run two big years on like over 3 years I mean there's a certain you know type of personality that wants to do that mm-hmm. and um you know that's that doesn't it's not a full fleshed version of Sandy but it's a really compelling version of Sandy that Mark creates in that book um, yeah, but I've heard similar things about people who have met Sandy. He's really into photography now, um, mm-hmm. so he goes around taking pictures of birds these days instead of chasing every every tick.
1: Well, one thing that my wife spotted, which I loved. You guys, you know, remember the the first Cuban vireo? Because mm-hmm. I think there have been two, and uh, the first one there was an article in the Miami Herald about it. And Sandy had gone to see that bird, and a journalist interviewed him, and that appeared in the article. And they the journalist asked sandy how he felt about his portrayal in the movie mm-hmm. and he said he thought it was perfect which i oh. thought uh, yeah all right <laughs> that yeah. was just like what a cool thing to say so <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, you know, played, played, yeah.
1: we all could be
0: so lucky to be played by owen wilson right <laughs> right right right, right. Sorry, said
2: steve martin. it's owen wilson steve right. martin played al
0: yeah that's oh. right I got to make
2: it up. I I know a friend of mine, Corey Finger, who who, you know uh, ran Mm -hmm. Al Leviton in Central Park a number of years ago, Um, and he said he was a really, you know, very down to earth, cool guy.
0: Yeah, so this is a fun aside, but I want to go back to that question that I asked. You know, do you think there is a tension between getting the biggest bird list and telling a good story? Because I think Noah Stricker's book, uh, for instance, uh, kind of went on the side of telling a good story sometimes mm-hmm. rather than you know potentially racking up the biggest possible list of birds mm-hmm. uh, because that racking up the biggest possible list of birds as we said is not always the exciting travelog story which is what noah was telling and and on the other hand he was like the first one to try and do this global big year thing and so he kind of you know blazed a trail to some extent but you know he went to some places where he didn't get as many birds but he did get a really great story and um you know, Arjen Dwerhus, the Dutch birder later who did it the next year and ended up breaking Noah's record. He went for the birds, uh, story
1: be damned. I do think that Noah does a good job taking his material and parsing through it to come up with good stories in a way that's manageable for a reader. And like, you know, to answer your question about um, how much that tension exists, I think it's it's there for for every um, big year story um whether the you know the political boundary the geographic boundary is a state which there are big yearbooks for states now including one that we're going to review in birding soon mm-hmm. uh, which is the louisiana big yearbook by uh Mary Beth mm-hmm. lima
2: yeah that's and
1: a- uh yeah i'm looking forward to to seeing that one um or if it's the aba area or the world um if for all of them, it's hard, but certainly for the world. I mean, the numbers are just overwhelming. And, and I think that was quite a challenge to pull off. And yeah. Arjan De Varshaas has a, has a book too. I think that is the only big year narrative that I know of that was written not in English. Yeah. Uh, so I actually tried to conduct a little bit of primary research uh, prior to <laughs> our talk. And I asked a couple Dutch birder friends that I made when I was in Costa Rica if they had read his book and and they hadn't unfortunately but um that does exist he there is a non-english um big year book that exists so you know if someone has read that they would be really interesting to know about it
0: yeah it's probably one that's actually kind of difficult to get here in in the united states i imagine so if anyone out there who's listening has uh is a dutch speaker and has got a uh put their hands on uh, Arjun's book, please let us know. I'd be curious to hear uh, what you think about it.
2: I think this is a great new venture for the ABA. A, a lot, Of course, the ABA did publish Phoebe Snetzinger's memoir. So mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. not continue? Do a line of big year books, republish Sandy's books, get a translator. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> I could just see Jeff's face when we proposed. <laughs> <laughs> So, smiles <laughs> that's right yeah absolutely yeah it sounds like a great idea <laughs> so we
0: we talked a little bit about mark of Masick's book and and uh, it does give a very it gives a decent history of u.s big years and uh as as you've mentioned as we mentioned when we were chatting about this beforehand um it, it's probably the most well-known of the big year books um mm-hmm. and there's a film attached obviously uh that a lot of people know um do you think that that book has promoted some misconceptions about big Ears? You know, as competitions, as you know, the, probably the biggest one is the idea from the film that the person who uh, gets the most birds in a year is the best birder in the world. Yes, um, <laughs> I <think laughs> you know. Yeah. I kind of cringed at that one. <laughs> you know, it's it's a fine movie, it's a fun movie, but that part goes like. Ugh.
2: And and you read it elsewhere. Every reporter has picked up this yes. this idea that it's a contest.
0: Yes. And and maybe, you know, the with Mark of Masek's book, the fact that three people were going after it in one year, it does sort of give the impression that, the, you know, there is a contest aspect to it, even though, for the most part, I think we would all agree that most people who write about big years, it's very much a personal journey. Um, or would you not agree <laughs> on it?
2: <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking again, I have Phoebe Snetzinger on my mind, and, and that's mm-hmm. not a big year book. But yeah. um, it's a big I, life book.
1: Yeah, it's book. like yeah.
2: Her, her life was a big year, but she mm-hmm. does write that, oh, this couple is like, you know, got, uh, there just two birds below me and, but so I go here to get more birds.
0: <laughs> that certainly is an aspect in a, in a lot of books. I, a lot of people are very concerned about the numbers and sometimes, you know, that sort of number game feels a little bit like very inside baseball. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people mm-hmm. outside of the burning community probably don't have any concept of, uh. Of what those numbers mean, um, which is why it's nice to have that kind of personal aspect. Um, we, we like they will recognize it as a large number, as an impressive number, because you you tell us that that is an impressive number. But you know, on its own, uh, it doesn't really mean a whole lot.
2: I would and, and then there are the plus numbers, you know, if approved.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it has become more complicated over the years.
2: <laughs> and then there's the North American without Hawaii.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Oh boy. Yeah, we. This is what I'm saying is there's a lot of angles, right? There's yeah. a lot of ways you can do a big year. Frank, you noted uh, that you heard from one recent author that it was sort of hard to write about the same places everyone else has written about. So, how do you think that that genre is sort of adapting? To that challenge is that why we're seeing so many of these sort of personal angles? Because there's only so many things you can say about Attu or the Dry Tortugas.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge mostly for you know the ABA area big years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for for future books, the game is already a, diff, a little different because the you know as we just mentioned, the playing field is different now. Mm-hmm. There's Hawaii, so that's going to be a uh, really cool it's going to be cool to see how, how birders write about that aspect. Um, a lot of times authors will write about big year history mm-hmm. and what other birders did and how they're you know recreating their footsteps. But that can get kind of challenging too, I think, because then it's just like layers on layers on layers. And eventually there's going to be so many books to sift through. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know how people are going to to handle that in the future. I think they'll come at it from different ways and and it'll be interesting to see how the genre adapts to that as it becomes, you know, a a much more layered sort of like historical undertaking.
2: Hmm. I guess wild America is the one that has most where the, the most retracing. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's at least a couple books that I'm aware of that are like basically recreating wild America. There's return, Scott yeah. Weidensall's book. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's what you're it's talking just, about. Yeah, it's it's just Return, Return to Return Wild, America, Wild America by Scott Weidensall. right? And there's also um, Lynn Lynn Hancock. Hancock's books, yeah. Looking for the Wild, uh, mm-hmm. and those are like deliberately recreating Wild America. So that's just a very cherished um, story and narrative.
0: Do you think that we'll see that sort of angle in future books? Like, I could see someone recreating Kingbird Highway, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right down to the eating the dry cat food uh, scene. <laughs> Like how much do you want to really recreate
1: Kingbird Highway? Let's see.
0: Yeah, <laughs> let's so see you do it. <laughs>
1: there are probably <laughs> limits. I mean, but I I should point out that like the other big year book that we're going to review in birding soon is Christian Hagenlocker's book. Oh. His book is called Falcon Freeway, which I mm-hmm. think is a pretty transparent nod to Kingbird Highway and mm-hmm. it also maybe I'm forgetting one, but that is the other big year book I can think of where one of the main elements of the story is there's like a real budget aspect, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's right. A really young guy, he's doing a big year, and
0: and I'll be honest, that is a nice angle, yeah. right? Because yeah. so much of big year birding, and let's be honest, it is about money and mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and how you manage those aspects. And you know, people who t- undertake a big ABA big year uh, often have what feels like unlimited amount of money and time. yeah, right. And so having that certain angle is a very uh, humanizing aspect of Christian's book and one that is um, certainly appealing.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's cool. I mean, one of the cool things about big year books, which harkens to some other questions we've already asked, big year books are, you know, in their way, it's a kind of environmental writing or literature. It's a kind of nature writing. But a lot of times, one of the hallmarks of nature writing, and one of the reasons why it's not always popular, is it's kind of like uh, this is hard, but it can be like a little boring. It's like, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's slow. The pace is very yes. slow and people like that. That's, I think that's one of the reasons that people like nature writing. Um, it's contemplative. It's very observant, but sometimes like not a lot is happening. It's not action packed, <laughs> but when you have the big year narrative, um, there's this tension automatically mm-hmm. introduced, which yeah. is that it's, you know, a numbers game. It's to whatever, whatever extent it They're is numbers, actually a competition yeah there's a tension there. And so when you have the budget tension too, that's like just another layer of intrigue and excitement. So, yeah.
2: Oh, I, I had not thought of that, but you're right. I, I, I think of the young person on a budget writing as more of, in line with the traditional young man going out into the world. meeting yeah, yeah. People mm-hmm. <laughs> growing up. Little, hopefully I was going to say Roman, but I wasn't sure if I was pronouncing it
1: correctly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all trying. You got, you got to take a crack at it. Just, just
0: run up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of the things I really enjoyed about um, King bird highway was his little, microscopic portraits of, of all the crazy birders. uh, Mm -hmm. Many of Mm -hmm. whom have become really well known in the field. Uh, Ted Parker was, you know, just so memorable. And And I really wish more of the, all you authors, more of the big year books had more about the people. Although I know that's hard because most of them are living. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I will say uh, that is something that I felt like Neil Hayward did very well in his book. Yes, Um, He focused a lot on the people. And one of the real, delights of uh, reading his book uh, was that I got to sort of see all these people that both that were sort of mutual friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to see a lot of people that I already knew and, and friends that I had and see them kind of described through Neil's eyes, which was uh, really nice. I was even in that book too, not to be <laughs> you know kind of you know, name yeah, drop or anything, yeah. but uh, I got a little bit in the last chapter
1: there. So, nice. I have one funny little story about that specific aspect of Neil's book, which is that I actually listened to that one on audiobook, mm-hmm. and he does not read the book himself. It's, it's a different reader. John Pushock is in the book. He's yes. an important person in the book because he really helps Neil to, mm-hmm. to, to do the, the Alaskan birds. And for whatever reason, like I, I met John Pushock once very briefly, He might not even remember. But uh, for whatever reason, that reader gave John Pushock a really strong... I I. I think it was like a Texan accent or something. And that's, I'm pretty sure that's not his accent. No, it is not. No, he <laughs> so, is, he's from Washington. <laughs> Thank
0: you.
1: So anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, Is that the only big year book that has been put into audiobook? I know that's a lot easier now than it used to be. But I I'm not aware of any other audiobook versions of of Big Year genres. And it may be that because Neil's book was published by a major publishing house, mm-hmm. and the, oh, there's a lot of self-published big year books out there. But um, um yeah, I don't I don't know if any of them have, have made it to audiobook. That's an interesting angle. Extreme
1: Birder is an Extreme audiobook. Burder. Okay. Uh, and I think Lynn Barber reads that herself, if We're I remember herself. correctly. Oh, yeah. okay. And um I think the big year as well, I th- but I'm not 100 sure. The big on year probably. I would not surprise yeah. me if the big I year. I hope yeah.
2: burning without borders too. Um,
0: okay, that without. makes sense because yeah, that's the, the recent ones bigger with, bigger that are coming from the bigger from publisher the
2: publishers eventually make yeah. there. Um yeah. I want Kingbird Highway narrated by Ken.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he he narrated um a season on the wind. Yeah, yeah. that one is an audiobook book. Mm-hmm. So. He's gotta do Kingbird Highway. <laughs> That's right. He's a pro now. He knows how to yeah. do it. It'd be great. Yeah. Kingbird Highway
0: being the sort of the classic of the of the genre. Um, do you guys have any other favorites uh of big years that really just stand out to you as really really good examples of this of this, you know, very popular genre?
2: Uh, the jewel hunter. It was wish fulfillment, but it was also well written. Um, and mm-hmm. we really haven't talked about that aspect because it's very hard to define what's good writing, yeah. uh, but he's very good at crafting a story. Um, and um, that's a really well, interesting
0: book too, because it only focuses on, on one family of birds too. So it's yeah, not like was, a going, big try and see everything sort of story. It's like, right. I'm going to see all the pittas.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, right. Yeah. For people who don't know uh, a British uh, bird or Chris Goody, Goody, G O O D. Die uh, yeah. quits his job and decides he's going to see every species of pitta in the world uh, in one year. So you you do have a little bit of the uh, aspect. I l- left my life to do this, um, but also he has to. There's a lot of strategizing and going to exotic places and meeting interesting people in these countries. Um, and every chapter is is a little adventure.
0: Which makes sense because pittas are kind of notoriously, <laughs> a lot of them are very difficult birds to see and they're very beautiful. So you mm-hmm. can tell, you can describe them in very evocative ways. And uh, there is a very interesting travelogue. I mean, you're traveling all over South Asia and uh, Australia to see these things. Yeah, I could see why that's a really great, um, a great yeah. why that would be a really neat take on and, the Big and, Year
2: book. And going to these foreign countries, you know, Thailand and africa and on Mm -hmm. his own he's not on an organized tour and that to me that's just totally amazing but yeah Yeah. he he actually knew a lot of languages and a lot of he had a lot of contacts there
0: Hmm. what about you frank what is sort of your favorite big book?
1: we've talked a a lot about the many of the ones that i think are are really the greats um to but to try and add one that we haven't really talked about, which a little bit defies the category. Um, I would really, I think I would want to mention Dean Fisher's recent book, which I reviewed for birding. It's called Roads, Peoples, Birds, Mountaintops and Billabongs. Hmm. And it takes place over the course of three years. So, you know, it's not, strictly speaking, a big year, but... Big, big years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try a big year or something. Anyway, um, he uh, he along with a non-birding friend after they got out of the Navy in 1959, um, got a big oversized Jeep and they drove all over the world. And he kept track of all the birds he saw. He saw in excess of 3,000, I think. And it's just... A wild adventure. They, I mean, well, th- that's another hallmark of big year stories that readers enjoy, and what makes them enjoyable to us as birders and readers is that there are always misadventures, mm-hmm. and their misadventures are like really misadventure. <laughs> I mean, some he, he, they did some really crazy stuff. I mean, he had like a gun pointed at his head in Colombia, and you know, they drove across the Sahara. And they like went in the Soviet Union, they went to Afghanistan. And I mean, it is just really wild. And it's very exciting, too, because part of the challenge of his book is like, he went to all these places that um, did not have field guides yet. So he took really (laughs) copious notes um, Mm -hmm. and, and identified a lot of the birds he saw retroactively, including like one really crazy thing that happened in that book was that he saw a wren in Peru that uh, he he didn't know what it was. And like five years later, it was like first described to science and it turned out that it was the Inca wren. So he had kind of like been the first person to like sort of like take notes of it. Um, um, So, and there he like expanded the range of like a couple of prion species in Chile or something. There was just so many exciting things about that book. So, I mean, if I was going to, know drop everything or choose to drop everything and uh do a big year i want to want to you know do it by road like that i just i think that's just really cool i mean i would even settle for just maybe north and south america but uh (laughs) yeah that one is very exciting and there's a couple others that i haven't read yet that i'm really intrigued by um i've heard really good things about the big twitch by sean dooley um that one is about australia Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like to do to do that one for sure in the future soon. And call collect Ask for Birdman is one that intrigues me. That's a really early one. Anyway.
0: My favorite is one that we have not mentioned here uh yet, but I'm gonna mention it. Um and and it's 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 great because it's a it's a great, well-written book, and it's one that I came across very early in my birding career. Uh so it has a kind of a sentimental aspect of it to me, and that is uh, Pete Dunn's mm-hmm. The Feather mm-hmm. Quest. I really love that book, and partly because Pete is such an amazing writer. The Feather Quest is takes part over a year, where he travels to a lot of different parts of the of the country, um, and you know visits all these amazing birding locations. It was the first time I'd ever heard of like Atu and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the real kind of classic places to go birding. And um, I, I distinctly remember reading it before because there's a whole chapter about birding in South Texas. And this was you know, in the mid-90s when I was going to South Texas to visit my grandparents who are winter Texans down mm-hmm. there. Going to those places that Pete writes about in that book was such a neat experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it's, it's a really nice, nicely paced book. Pete and his wife So there's a lot of really nice portraits of their relationship mm-hmm. and the relationship of just birders in general. And it's just a really well-done book that I always encourage people to read. Uh, Pete Dunn's The Feather Quest.
1: That one I think has a lot about birding culture too. A lot of reflection on totally culture. does. Yes, so that's absolutely nice one in sort of the uh,
0: inimitable Pete mm-hmm. Dunn style. Yes, mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I think Bird Highway was one of the first birding books I ever read when I was just starting birding, and it mm-hmm. really introduced me to the idea of strategizing um, yeah. and mm-hmm. what migration <laughs> meant. It uh, these were just totally mm-hmm. new concepts, and um, I think you can actually learn from reading um, the big year books. Um, I find the whole strategy, where to go at what time of year, really fascinating.
0: That is that is funny because, you know, big year books are, so we talked about very early on uh, in this conversation, are, are aspirational, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of us are not going to do big years, but it is fun to read about them. And from these narratives, we learn so much about birding culture, mm-hmm places to go birding, places that we can put on our, you know, bucket list that we want to get to, we have to get to. Uh, And, and, you know, through that, we learn a lot about what what birding is through its, you know, sort of most extreme (laughs) examples, which I think is a real important thing with these with this sort of genre. Thank you both, Frank and Donna, uh, for joining me for this book club. If uh, any listeners out there have any thoughts about their favorite big year books, please let us know in, in the comments on social media. You'll be able to find us at all the normal places. We want to have make this sort of a conversation. And also, if you have any genres of bird or birding books, they don't necessarily have to be. Uh, narratives. They can be any sort of birding book that you want to hear Frank and Donna and I tackle in the future. Please let us know. Thank you, Frank and Donna, for joining me.
2: Oh, pleasure.
0: Thanks so much. It was wonderful. Great fun. Yeah. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider supporting this podcast by joining the ABA. You get a lot of great bird content both here, but also in our magazines. We even have an e-membership if you are okay getting your magazine online instead of in the mail. It's a little bit cheaper that way. And there's also a discounted membership for young birders as well. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make some special shout outs Two, James Muller of Columbus, Ohio. Rodney Schmidt of Sierra Vista, Arizona. Felix Hodit of Seattle, Washington. Laurel Baum and her family of Altamont, New York. Kenneth Bishop of Mattawan, Michigan. Megan Frey of West Palm Beach, Florida. Megan Hart of Cumberland City, Tennessee. Brad Miles of Sag Harbor, New York. The Kristen Swinehart family of Osceola, Indiana. Todd Carter of Mogador, Ohio. Daniel Moore of Seattle, Washington. And Dave Bryan of Overland Park, Kansas all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Now that I'm doing these weekly, I expected not to have to read so many, but that was a lot in the last week. So thank you so much. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. In mind of Kingbird Highway and Falcon Freeway, he's penning his own memoir, Avocet Avenue, a journey as long as an avocet's legs with as many curves as an avocats, but it's not working. How about this? You'll wanna rock down to avocat avenue. Technical production is by John Lowry. His is a journey from the scorching Texas hill country to the rest of the continent in a completely random pattern that surprises and amazes all he meets. It's Karakara Causeway. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They have a meandering, confusing, frequently silent journey of self-discovery that ultimately asks the question, can we really tell who we are? Coming next spring in Pitanax Interstate. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. You know, sometimes once that personal journey is over, you end up right back at the beginning again, but this time with a little more in your belly, more in your soul than you had when you started for that check Fallaroop refuge loop it's a long strange journey around and around and around and around and around questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org i'm nate swick thanks for listening stay healthy everybody till next week